We have a number of couples getting married this summer from Hope, hopefully. And I was thinking about that during the week. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about this time 11 years ago when uh, we were approaching our own wedding. We were doing marriage preparation at the time. And when you do marriage preparation, you're given all sorts of wisdom and advice and little nuggets to help you through a married life. I was thinking about some of them that, uh, that stand out. One of them that we were told at the time was never go to bed angry. Never go to bed angry. And at the time, that seemed like wise advice. But 11 years in, I have discovered that sometimes, actually, it's better to go to bed angry because otherwise you'll stay up and fight all night. I've discovered that sometimes in the heat of the moment, when you're tired, when you're sleep deprived, when your filter's off, that is not the best time to resolve things. But sometimes sleeping on it in the cold light of day can help you see things from another perspective. So I'm not so sure about that one anymore. One of the other key pieces of advice we were told was this, choose your battles wisely. Choose your battles wisely. And I think that has been really helpful advice, not just in marriage, but also in raising our little seven-year-old Elijah, that not every battle is worth fighting. All battles are not created equal. That there are some battles that you're simply better walking away from. There are some fights that you might win the fight, but you can still lose the war. And so there are some things that you might want to wade into. You might want to make a big fuss off. You might want to to put your point of view across. But sometimes you're better just being quiet and walking away. You don't have to comment on every Facebook post that you don't agree with. You don't have to start an argument with every person who you disagree with. You don't have to get involved in every dispute just because you have an opinion on it. Because when you do that, sometimes you're expending all this emotional energy that could be much better used and more, more, much more productively used somewhere else. And so you're expending all this energy and actually when it comes to the things that are really important, you don't have enough reserves for that. So there's some battles in marriage Some battles in raising a family that you just don't need to fight. So 11 years into my own marriage, here's one battle that I've realized I don't need to fight anymore. My wife has this strange, insatiable thing where she collects jam jars. Uh, Any jar that we have used of almost any product that comes in a glass jar, she has this thing about washing it. I don't know where they go. I have no idea what she does with it. For the first 10 years, I fought her on this. This is now year 11. I have decided that's a battle I'm not going to win and it's not worth fighting, okay? So I'm over it. I'm fine. I'm not annoyed. I'm I'm not that petty that it's going to annoy me anymore. I don't know what those glass jars are, but I'm just... let it go. You can see I have let that go. It's gone. Glass jars, do whatever you want with them, pet. The other battle with my son, he's seven years old. He's a little boy. He thinks that, how do I put this? He thinks that releasing bodily noises in public is really funny. And I have to say, 
I can't show him this, but I, I also find it funny. And so that's a battle that I don't fight right now. When he's 16 and he's still doing it, that's maybe when I'll step in and become a little bit more firm about it. There's some battles that you choose to fight. And there's others that you're better just letting go. But what about when you don't get a choice in the matter? What about those battles that you didn't cause, you didn't choose, you didn't pick, but they chose you? You're just going about your life. You're doing the best you can. And out of nowhere, something happens. Some issue arises. Some problem confronts you. Some circumstance comes in from left field. And you didn't see it coming. And you didn't plan it. And you didn't prepare for it. And you didn't cause it. But you have to deal with it. You can't ignore it. You're suddenly and unexpectedly faced with a situation or a circumstance and you can't get away from it. Sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's just a problem, but you have to deal with it. Ignoring it or walking away simply isn't an option. That's what we're going to think about today. In this message that I've entitled, What Do You Do? when you don't know what to do. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Isn't that really where we all are at the minute? 2020 began just like every other year. We maybe made resolutions. We were full of plans and dreams. and Things were just ticking along nicely in January. February, things were much the same. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, this thing, this virus came. We didn't plan for it. We hadn't prepared for it. We didn't expect it. But it has taken us and it has totally transformed our lives. It has totally uh, changed everything that we could have imagined this year would look like. We've been locked in our homes. We've had our businesses closed. We've had to make all sorts of changes to our lives with social distancing. Some of us haven't seen our families. We could never have planned or prepared or expected for this. What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you've never been here before? Let's look at Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Second Chronicles chapter 20. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Moonites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's all ready in Hazazon, uh, Temor, that is in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah at this time. And by all accounts, he was a pretty good king compared to some of the others. He was completely devoted to Yahweh, the Lord his God. He got rid of the false gods. He got rid of the foreign idols. And he pointed people towards the worship of the one true God. He reinstated the reading of God's word. So he was a good king. He was a decent bloke doing his best. But you know what I've discovered? You can be doing your best. You can be a good person and still things come your way that you don't plan for and you don't expect and you don't know what to do with them. And he discovers that not one, not two, but three 
armies, three foreign nations have aligned themselves, have formed this alliance together, and they're coming against him. And isn't that the way it happens sometimes? That it's not just one problem coming against you, but it's two or three at the same time. If it was just one thing, you'd be able to focus, you'd be able to give it your attention, you might be able to deal with it, but it's two, three things at the same time. It's your job and your marriage. It's your health and a friendship that's going through problems. There's two or three things and you just feel completely overwhelmed. And not only that, but we're told that they're just at the other side of the Dead Sea. In other words, they had been sneaking up on Judah. They'd been sneaking up on Jehoshaphat and they're just round the corner. They're about 20 miles away. They're one day away. So he doesn't have time to prepare. He doesn't have time to strategize. He doesn't have time to plan. You see, there's some things in life that you see coming. The birth of a child and you go to your classes and you read all the books and you you know, and you plan for it. Getting married, we were talking about that a minute ago. You go through marriage prep and you plan and you prepare for it. And so when the time comes, you're about as ready as you can be. But then there's other times, other things, other circumstances, other problems, other situations that hit you out of nowhere. They come from left field. You're just going about your business, doing the best you can, and suddenly this thing confronts you, and you have no plan to order a book from Amazon to read about how to deal with it. You have no uh, time to sit down and strategize, to call advisors, to, 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 to do um, any big uh, preparation for it. You simply have to face it. Maybe a test result comes back and the bottom drops out of your world. Maybe a phone call that you receive and you're left in shock. Maybe you overhear a conversation and you're left reeling. Maybe something happens with your child and you don't know what to do. Maybe an accident happens and you realize that from that point onwards, things are never going to be the same again. That's where Jehoshaphat finds himself here. He's been told that this vast alliance of armies are about to attack him. What does he do? Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. It says he was alarmed. Other translations say he was afraid or he was frightened. And that's totally normal. Right throughout this, I feel like every week I've said this, fear is okay. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be alarmed. It's okay to be anxious. That's normal. That's human. But what I would say about Jehoshaphat is this. He was alarmed, but he wasn't paralyzed by fear. See, there's nothing wrong with being afraid, but there is something wrong with allowing fear to completely cripple you. When you're consumed by it, when you're controlled by it, that, uh, that puts you in a place where you're not acting in the way God wants you to act. And I love what it says here. It says, alarmed, he resolved to inquire of the Lord. 
He resolved. I love that word, he resolved. He determined in his heart. It wasn't just a casual whim. It wasn't a half-hearted decision. No, he decided, I'm resolving. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to inquire of the Lord. He didn't panic. He didn't get into a huge fluster. He didn't run around like a headless chicken. He didn't go to Tesco's and buy 45 toilet rolls and 20 liters of hand sanitizer. No, he resolved that the first thing he would do would be to get on his knees, to get on his face before the God of heaven and see what God had to say about the situation. When's the last time you did that? With the situation we're facing, when's the last time you went to God and said, God, how should I navigate through this? Never mind even the the, the coronavirus in life, when things happen, when your world falls apart, when you're blindsided, when you don't know what to do. Where's the first place you turn? Is it Google? Trying to find out what all the symptoms of that sickness are and what your chances are? Is it the BBC trying to find out what the news reports say? Is it the experts? Can I say, well, I understand all of us have never been here before. The experts have shown themselves to have no more clue than you or I have about this. Is it uh, all your friends, you go around and you want to see what everyone's opinion is? There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But the first place that we go, the first direction we turn is not to the people around us. It's not to the screen in front of us. It's to the God in heaven who's above us. That's where we take our direction from. Because he's the only one whose opinion really matters or counts. And so Jehoshaphat so strong, godly leadership here. And the people rally around him and they pray and they fast with him. And how we need strong, godly leadership at this time. How we need men and women in government and leadership in our community of integrity and godliness and truth who will be guided by truth, who will be guided by the word of God and who will be guided by, by, by what the Lord says rather than just popular opinion rather than just by the news reports, rather than by political expediency. We need men and women who don't wait and see what direction the wind is blowing, but bow their faces before the God of heaven and see what he says. We don't need political correctness right now. We don't need political point scoring right now. We need men and women of truth, of wisdom and integrity. And I pray that our government, I pray that our leaders, I pray that our local assembly would get on their faces before the Lord God of heaven and would get their direction from him at this time. That there'd be men and women of resolve and conviction who can lead our community through this difficult time. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord at the front of the new courtyard and said, this is his prayer, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. You know, 
Uh, some of you won't know this. I, I actually wear glasses when I'm driving. I, I'm short-sighted, and for years I've worn glasses when I'm driving. But a number of years ago, uh, very rapidly I thought my eyesight had gone downhill because when I put on my glasses in the car, everything was suddenly really blurry. And I thought, goodness, this is not good. My eyes are deteriorating really fast. And so I made an appointment with uh, the optician. I went along. He tested my eyes. He said, Craig, your prescription is exactly the same as the last time. And I said, that can't be so. He said, have you got your glasses? And I went out to the car and I brought them into him. And he looked at them and he smiled and he said, Craig, when you're not wearing your glasses, what do you do with them? And I said, well, I only wear them in the car, so when I'm not wearing them, I just throw them on the dashboard and leave them there to the next time I get in. And he said this. He said, Craig, the heat of the sun has come through the windscreen of your car and it has warped the glass. There's nothing wrong with your eyesight, but you will need the glasses replaced. I was glad that I wasn't going blind. I wasn't so glad that I had to spend 100 quid on a new pair of glasses. But here's what I've learned. When the lens through which you see things is blurry and out of focus, everything gets out of focus. When you don't have your focus right, everything seems distorted. Everything is as it shouldn't be. And here's what we find here in this. That that Jehoshaphat, instead of focusing on the enemy, instead of focusing on the opposition or the obstacle or the problem, he says, we're going to get our focus right. We're going to look through the lens of faith. We're going to look through the lens of the character of God and we are going to fix our eyes on him. We're going to fix our focus on him. Look at what it says. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. He says, we can't fight against that, but God, you can. He shifts his focus from what is coming against him to the God who rules and reigns above him. Look at verse 7. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Is Jehoshaphat reminding God of his past? Has God had a memory lapse? Has God got some sort of amnesia? No. Here's what Jehoshaphat is doing. He's reminding himself of God's faithfulness in the past and God's promises for the present. He recalls how in the past when God's people have faced circumstances just like this, when they faced Pharaoh, when they faced the Red Sea, when they faced the wilderness and the desert, when they had no food aid, God was faithful. When they came to the land of Canaan and they couldn't fight the enemies on their own, God was faithful. He reminds them of God's promises. You gave us this land for all eternity. He says, God, this is your promise that this is our land. I love what he does here. He says, I'm going to reach into the past and remember God's faithfulness and I'm going to drag it into the present and I'm going to connect it to God's promises right now and that's going to give me faith and courage to face the future. We need to do that sometimes. When we face things that we've never faced before. When we don't know what to do, do you know what we do? We reach into the past and remember the times when God has been faithful in the past. 
When three years ago you were so depressed, you didn't think you would ever get out of your bed again, but here you are. God somehow turned things around. When four years ago your marriage was falling apart and you didn't think it would survive, and somehow God held you together and your marriage is now better than ever. When six years ago you didn't know how you would put food on the table and yet you never went out without a meal. You know, I do that sometimes. When I get worried about finances, you know what I do? I remind myself of God's provision in the past. I remind myself of when we were living on the North Coast for a year before we came to this church. And we had very little money. And we were down to our last few pounds for that week. And our rent took 60% of our income. And I remember just going, God, I don't know how I'm going to to, to provide for my family. I have this responsibility. I feel the weight of it. I don't know what to do. And I remember that night, a text message coming through from somebody I hadn't seen in years. And it was somebody who simply said, Craig, can I have your bank details? And I joked with them and I said, there's not much in there if you want to take it. And I sent them my bank details and within 10 minutes, 500 pounds was put in my account. That was on the Friday night. On the Sunday we went into church, somebody else who I hardly knew, who I'd only met a few times, stopped me at the end of the service as I'm walking out and just hands me a bit of paper. And it was a check for another £500. I have no idea how they knew. Well, I do. God prompted that guy, God prompted that man in church and he provided through his people. And so when now when I get nervous about finances, I look back at that time and I look back at God's faithfulness and I drag God's faithfulness from the past into the present and I allow that to give me faith for the future. What has God done in your past? Yes, the obstacle's different now. Yes, the enemy's different now. Yes, the problem's different now. But the God is the same. And you know what? It's not that different. When you're facing something that you've never faced before and you don't know what to do, reach into the past. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. Bring it into the present. Hold on to his promises in the present and allow that to give you faith to face the future. Verse 12, Jehoshaphat sums up his prayer. He says, Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. And then listen to this. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You fix your eyes on him. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I don't know what to do about coronavirus, but my eyes are on you. I don't know what to do about this marriage, but my eyes are on you. I don't know what to do about this health problem, but my eyes are on you. I don't know what to do about my son or daughter, but my eyes are on you. I don't know what to do, but today, God, I am choosing, I am resolving to firmly fix my focus, my gaze on you. I will allow what you say 
to be greater than what I see. I will allow your promises to be greater than my problem. And I will remember that you are good all the time. You are mighty, you are faithful, and you have never failed me, and you won't fail me now. I will stand on the truth of your word more than I lean on my own understanding. I don't know what to do, God. I don't know what to do. But God, my eyes, my eyes are on you. Look at verses 13 to 15. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones. Isn't that a lovely picture? All those families gathered, stood there before the Lord. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God. So as all of the people gather with their kids, with their little ones, and they stand before the Lord, the Spirit of God falls upon this guy, Jehaziel, and he begins to prophesy, he begins to decree, he begins to declare, he begins to speak God's word into the situation, and he says this. He says, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged because of this enemy that's vast, that's overwhelming, for the battle is not yours. The battle is belongs to God. I was talking about marriage prep earlier, and this is not a marriage seminar. But one of the other things we we do when we do marriage prep is this. We talk about who's going to take responsibility for what once you're married. Because when two people come together, they come together with different personalities. They come together with different strengths, different abilities, different gifts, different experiences. And so you want to collaborate in that. You want to complement each other. And you want to to figure out, you know, who's going to make the decisions about this? Who's going to step up in this? And who's going to sit back? And and with that thing, who's going to be the one who takes responsibility for that? And I have to say that after 11 years of marriage, for us, it it happened fairly easily. It wasn't something that we had to really uh, think about too much Um, because Becky and I are very different in many ways and there's many things that she's good at that I'm not good at and, and vice versa. And so very quickly we just took on different roles and responsibilities. And so in our house, anything kind of to do with outside the house, anything to do with the car, most things to do with finances and anything to do with booking holidays, that's kind of my responsibility. So Becky has never had to think about is her car taxed? Is it MOT'd? Is it insured? Because she knows that I take care of that stuff. Almost anything to do with inside the house, to do with meals, to do with keeping the house clean, to do with Elijah, our little boy on his school, Becky tends to look after all of that stuff. I never get up wondering if Elijah will have clean clothes for school or if he'll have a packed lunch. I have no idea how the dishes in our house get cleaned. There's this box in our kitchen. I hear water swirling around it. And so I leave my dirty dishes somewhere close to it within you know, proximity of it. And the next day they're back in the cupboard. I have no idea how that happens. But it's taken care of. And I love it. It just works. It works for us. And Here's where we would run into problems. If one of us did something that wasn't our responsibility. 
So if I were to start making Elijah packed lunches, he would have two packed lunches every day, which might suit him but wouldn't suit us. If Becky were to start booking holidays, we would have two summer holidays, which right now sounds very appealing, but it would be a waste of money. If Becky were to insure her car as well, again, we'd have two companies insuring the same car. So that's one way we would run into problems. The other way would be if we didn't do something that was our responsibility. If Becky gets pulled over by the police and they say this car isn't taxed or insured, and she says to me, you didn't tax or insure it, and I go, well, it's your car. She would say, yes, but it's your responsibility. If, if, uh, if our little boy were to get up in the morning and there'd be no packed lunch or no clothes for him to wear, she would say, well, he's your son as well, and I'd go, yes, but this is your responsibility. That's just how we do things. And so you need to, I guess what I'm trying to say is this. We need to understand what's our responsibility and what's not. And it's the same with God. When we face problems in life, especially when we don't know what to do, here's what we need to figure out. What's my responsibility here? And what's God's responsibility? What do I need to do? And what do I just need to leave and let God do? What do I need to take hold of? And what do I need to let go of? Where do I need to step up? And where do I need to step back? Where do I need to realize that I don't have to control every single thing because I'm a bit of a control freak? And when do I need to go, actually, God, you need to take control of this because I can't. Through the prophet, God says this to Jehoshaphat, this battle is not yours to fight. Jehoshaphat, I'm going to fight this one for you. I'm going to take responsibility for this. You don't need to stress about it. I'm going to take care of it. Verse 17, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow and the Lord your God will be with you. You don't have to fight this enemy. Yes, you will have to face it, but you won't have to fight it. You can't bury your head in the sand and pretend it's not there. You can't ignore it, but you do have to face it. I love that, but I find it so hard to do. Because by personality and nature, here's what I am. I'm a fighter and I'm a fixer. I'm someone who, when I feel passionate about someone, I will fight to the better end for it. And I'm a fixer. I want to wade in and solve everything. And there's so many times when I've done that and I've made a complete mess of it. And I go in too quickly or I go in unwisely or I go in with the wrong approach and it all just gets blown out of proportion. But in the last few years, God has been teaching me about this. And he's been teaching me what I'm teaching you here. And that there are some battles you need to fight and there's some that you don't. There's some that I need to take responsibility for, and there's some that I need to go, God, I just need you to sort this out. There are so many times when I have waited in with all guns blazing, and if I'd just waited a day or two, I could have evolved so, or avoided so many problems. And so now... I find myself trying not to react because sometimes or very often 
our reactions are overreactions in the heat of the moment. Instead of reacting, why don't we step back? Why don't we get on our knees and say, God, what's your take on this? What should I do here? Is this for me to fight or is this for you to fight? And here's what I've found when I don't react. I'm much better able to respond appropriately. Things that I would have waded into and made a mess of, I just sit back. And you know what I've discovered after two or three days? Sometimes they take care of themselves. Things that I would have went trying to get an apology for someone and made things worse, after two or three days, they come to me and say sorry. Or after two and three days, this is hard to believe, even I might realize that I have had some fault in it and I go and apologize to them. Sometimes I've realized that God takes care of things. I know this is hard to believe, much better than I ever will. A number of years ago, we had a situation where somebody who we really loved and trusted and believed in turned against us and told lies about us and betrayed us and really, really deeply hurt us. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you, but it, it pulls the rug out from under your feet. You thought you could trust this person and then you discover you can't. And all this doubt and all this insecurity comes up. But within me, because I'm a fighter and a fixer, I wanted to, to put things right. I wanted everyone to know the truth. I wanted to confront it. I wanted to make a big fuss of it. I wanted to, to pres- declare my innocence to the world and tell everybody how horrible and rotten and stinking this other person was. And as I got before God, God said this, Craig, let me fight this one for you. I'm going to vindicate you. And it was so hard for me because I'm a fighter and I'm a fixer. But I look back now and I see how God has vindicated us. I see how he dealt with it so, so, so much better than I ever could have. And I see his favor upon our life since then. And if I would have waited in as a fighter and a fixer, I would have made a mess. And I know God's blessing and favor would not have been upon us. And so some of us need to learn just to step back and say, God, is this one for me? Or are you going to take care of this one? Some of you need to hear that today. Let the Lord vindicate you. I know you've been hurt. I know that what they did to you was wrong. I know that they lied about you and I know you want to preserve your reputation. I know that they betrayed you and I know everything within you wants to defend yourself, wants to get revenge on them and wants to tell everyone the truth. But I believe the Lord wants to say to you today, I'm going to fight this one for you. I'm going to fight this one for you. Don't allow your heart to get filled with anger and toxicity about what has happened. Keep your heart right before me. Posture yourself in humility before me. I'm going to fight this one for you. And watch what I do. You see, people often talk about fight or flight, don't they? You know, it's a fight or flight moment. When you are faced with something, it's a fight or flight moment. What about if it's a stand and say moment? What if it's a wait and watch moment? That's what Jehoshaphat here is told to do. Let's finish up for today. Verses twenty to twenty-three. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. 
As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Let me say that to you. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. And I love this. Listen to this. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah. And they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. And after they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy each other. What do they do here? What do God's people do to win the victory? They simply stand and they worship the Lord, their God. They took care of their responsibility and God took care of his. They took care of the worship and he took care of the warfare. They kept their focus fixed on God and he fought the battle on their behalf. He set up ambushes against the enemy. He turns them against each other. He confuses them so that they end up killing each other. Those are the sort of battles I want to fight where I don't have to lift a finger and I still win. That's a good battle right there. Where you do nothing but you emerge victorious at the end of it. Now I'm not saying there's some battles that you don't ever have to fight. There are times when we do need to step up. There are times when we do need to confront things. There's times when we need to deal with things. And as Christians, sometimes we try to be nicer than Jesus. Jesus confronted issues in his day. So there are times when you need to step up. But there's a lot of times when you're faced with something and you don't know what to do. You're blindsided. It comes from nowhere. You have no idea how to handle it, how to deal with it. And you need to simply come before the Lord your God and say, God, I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you. What do you think I should do? And the Lord would say to you, leave this one to me. You don't need to fight this one. Keep your focus fixed on me. This might be too big for you, but it's not too big for me. Let me fight this one for you. Say, finish. When I was in my early 20s, I lived in America for two years in Cleveland, Ohio. And my best buddy when I was there was a guy called Greg, Big Greg. He was six foot six. 22 stone. He had been an American football player. He was built like a tank and uh, he was my best friend and we, we went to church and we hung out together and one, one weekend we were out somewhere in downtown Cleveland and Greg went off to the toilet and I was sitting on my own and these three guys who had been drinking a bit too much came over to the table and at first they were being friendly but then things turned a bit and they began to get quite nasty and quite aggressive and I know that you're looking at me thinking that guy looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger but I actually got a little bit nervous, I I got a little bit afraid in that moment and things I, I thought this is not going to go well for me because these guys, there's three of them, there's one of me and they're big and this isn't going to be good. And then over my back appeared this big shadow. And there was big Greg standing there. And can I say in that moment, I became a lot more confident. I became a lot more bold. I became a lot more aggressive. I don't like to say it. I became like, if you remember Scooby-Doo, little scrappy-doo, let me at them. Let me, I mean, I would have taken them. 
But those guys did not want to fight anymore. They just wanted to get out of there because they didn't want to take on my friend, Big Greg. What made me bold that night? What turned me from being uh, timid and scared into being courageous and confident? It was the presence of a friend who was bigger than me. Whatever battle you're facing today, whatever situation that confronts you, whatever circumstance that there is that you don't know where to turn, can I say to you that you have a friend? You have a friend who knows how to fight. You have a friend who is saying to you today, I'll fight this one for you. Give me responsibility for this one. Here's what your job is. It's to get on your knees. It's to fix your focus on me. It's to worship me. It's to keep your eyes fixed on me. Here's what you do when you don't know what to do. You fix your focus on him and allow him to do that which only he can do. And you will watch and see the victory of the Lord and how he brings you through. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that you're the God who loves us, that we are your treasured possession. And if we belong to you, then it's not just us against what we're facing, but it's you and us against what we're facing. And so, Lord, whatever it is today, I pray that you would show us what to do. But above all else, that we would keep our eyes and our hearts postured in humility, fixed on you. And you know what the great thing is? That they won the spoils of a victory. They enjoyed the blessings and benefits of a battle that they didn't have to fight. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came down from heaven. God's son came. And there was a battle that we couldn't win against sin and death. But Jesus fought it on our behalf. When he died on the cross, when he rose again, he won the victory. And he offers you and he offers me new life through faith in him. Please, would you consider simply praying a prayer of putting your trust in him today, of putting your your life in his hands and saying, God, I give my life to you. I surrender my life to Jesus. I choose to follow you.